This is the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, featuring talks and conversations recorded live by the Public Programs Department of California Institute of Integral Studies, a nonprofit university located in San Francisco on unceded Ramatoshaloni land. Through our programming, we strive to amplify the voices of those who have historically been underrepresented. To find out more about CIIS and public programs like this one, visit our website, ciis.edu, and connect with us on social media at CIIS Pub Programs. Hi, Lauren. It's so great to have you here with us at CIIS. Welcome. Hi. Thank you so much. I'm so excited, but obviously nervous, but nervous is excitement. Well, since we'll be talking about moods tonight, that seems like it's great that you just name your mood right to get started. Exactly. And kind of doing that whole, like, I'm not nervous, I'm excited, change the feeling. Beautiful. <laughs> Otherwise, I would be having a panic attack right now. I'm, this is my first, like, live interview I've ever done, so I'm really, really excited. Oh, that's great. And we'll just kind of have a chat and uh, and explore this amazing book that I was able to read over the weekend. And uh, as a moody woman myself, I must admit, I was really touched by it. And um resonated with so many things that you said in the book. And so um, hopefully we can dive into some of that and also learn a little bit more about your work in the world and, and what you've been up to since, since writing the book as well. So um, yeah, that's great. If it's okay with you, I, I kind of want to do a deep dive first into some of the ideas that are really foundational to the book and then kind of broaden out from there. Yeah, that's, that works great for me. Okay. All right. So uh, for our listeners, I would love for you to tell me a little bit about how you ended up writing the book of moods. What was yeah. the, the, a little bit of the story about how you came to this project? So there's kind of two parts to the story. Um, and that involves words of women and the book of moods. And I think it's, you know, I've been talking about it a lot. I used to be a little bit more as a writer ashamed of it because I felt like, oh, I like built this platform to um, create this book, kind of the opposite way that authors tend to do things. You write and then you gain a following from your writing. So basically what happened was um, five years ago, I was living in New York. I was writing for different magazines. Um, I just moved in with my boyfriend. I seemingly was like, had everything. But I kept, I don't know, like I kept just, I was just breaking down like and they weren't big breakdowns it was just like small little things like coming home from work and being in a bad mood and you know wasting a Saturday just like obsessing over a text or something small and it wasn't until I came home one night I think I had a bad commute bad day at work maybe got an aggressive email from my boss and I just you know I was just in one of those funks where I like couldn't get out of it and my um, boyfriend was waiting for me and he um, was cooking dinner and he had wine and he was like trying to get me out of it. And eventually he just like freaked out. He was like, I can't do this anymore. I can't live with you and your moods. It's exhausting. And I think it was the first time, I think when you live with someone, you're forced to evaluate yourself and like the way you live, because now you're living with someone. It was the first time I was like, wow, like the way that I am is actually not always okay. The way that I am is affecting someone and they're trying to tell me this. And it was this like pivotal life changing moment where I was like, I better get my act together. Like I need to figure this out. Like, because it's, it's not just like, Oh, I'm an artist. I feel things in the moment. It was like debilitating and it was ruining my life and it was ruining his life. So I kind of was 
set out on this journey and I decided like the things that were making me feel better, the things I was learning, I decided to like collect in a, um, in a blog, in an Instagram account. And because I know for me, the biggest thing with moods is the, the pain of like feeling them alone. Like you can seem perfect on the outside. And I talk about this, but really you're battling with something internally and you usually women don't talk about it because they feel like it's petty or silly or vain or stupid. So when I heard other women talking about it, famous women, um, you know, successful women, it made me feel better. It made me feel less alone. So I started putting that on the Instagram. And at the same time, I was like, I want to write like a book about this, but I couldn't get um, an agent. I was kind of like, you know, just a young writer. Um, So I was like, you know what, I'll just self-publish it. And then five years went by of me just like working on this book and getting ready to like publish it one day myself. And an editor and an agent came to me and they're like, we love this account. We love your newsletter. We love your blog. We love whatever you're working on. Is this a book? And I was like, yes. Oh my God. So it it kind of went full circle. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Where we are today. Right. Exactly. And you know, the, the phenomenon of having a public presence before publishing a book is kind of new. This is is a, it's a new way of doing things. And, and it sounds like from what I've learned about words of women is that there was a lot of resonance with this idea that other women, you sharing your experience, other women were coming back to you and saying, this is happening to me too. Exactly. And it's funny because I started the account and it was more like, oh, this is me. I read this in a book and it's making me feel better. Or this is some study. And then when women would say like, I feel the same way, like that made me feel better. So like, it was this reciprocal, amazing system where like I was posting stuff and then women were seeing it. And then I was feeling better because they were resonating with it. And I realized there's so much power in sharing and talking about these feelings. And that's kind of why I'm so excited to have this book finally be out because it's really a collection of like the five years of, of the best things I found. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you, you touch on some pretty heavy moods in this book. <laughs> and as I was reading, I started to make a list of the, the words that you were using to describe some of the moods. So I'm going to throw those out there and maybe we could unpack like your version of that mood and my version of that mood and how these tend to show up. Because my experience when I was reading this, it made me think a lot of Brene Brown, first of all, and her work around naming what's really true for us as a true act of vulnerability. Um, And you used words that we often are told not to use or to gloss over, you know, things like anger and perfectionism and envy and social comparison. And when I say that, say those to you now, where you are now, what comes up for you? How is it that you found a way to be able to name these moods and, and tell your truth about these moods? Yeah, what I feel is intense. Yeah. And for me, naming it is really where the power came in. Um, so like, as I say in the book, everyone has their own individual triggers. You know, it could be my, a comment from my mom. Someone would be like, why are you letting that bother you? But it's the deep-rooted understanding of what the comment represents, which a lot of times is misunderstanding or expectation, um, or why I see a photo of my friend who looks gorgeous and why, like, even though I'm happy for her, I'm still kind of have this weird pit in my stomach, and that's envy. And being able to name that is so powerful. It's like a freedom, like it's like a release, like, okay, this is my trigger, like this is my struggle right here. And I think... 
I'm now proud of the fact like, yeah, I do have these feelings. A lot of women do. And I think being able to name it takes a little bit of the, the pain and the stigma away and gives me a chance to look at myself and be like, okay, this is, this is envy. This is comparison. Let's work through it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And how do you now, after doing all of this work, after spending time in, in really deep reflection, how do you find in the moment that you're able to name it, claim it, and move on? What's your process like? Well, it's, you know, obviously been a long time. So, you know, it's one of those things I've had to practice over years. But for an, an example is like depletion was a big mood for me. Like when I would come home from work and realize like this, this feeling is me being worn down. This is truly my willpower depleted. So like it's being able to recognize that sign, like, okay. And then what I do is I just know, like, I feel like I know myself now and I go, okay, like, what can I do to refill myself? Like there's, I have like three things I know that I like. I like to watch Real Housewives. I'm not ashamed. It's my guilty pleasure. And I like to, or have a glass of wine. And these things I just learned to kind of like automatically just start doing like, and my husband and I, we have a joke because like, I'll be like, I'm depleted. I can't cook dinner right now. I need an hour to just like recharge. And I feel like the more you practice these rituals and the more you practice understanding what you're feeling and saying, I'm depleted or I'm anxious, just saying it to yourself and then kind of focusing on what are the things I can practice doing to get me out of it. And it's not always going to work, you know, the first time or the second or the third, but the more you start noticing it, trying it and doing it, it kind of just starts to become part of you. And I feel like, especially with my husband, I mean, he's heard me talk about it so much. Now his, he like knows and he's always like, I'm depleted. I need to play video games. And it's kind of like part of our lives now. Like we both understand how to express how we're feeling and what to do when we need to like try and combat that feeling. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I notice it physically often mm. as well. You know, I'll have like one shoulder that all of a sudden is somewhere it generally isn't, right? Or I'll yeah. notice that I'm... Uh, my stomach feels really speedy or that I, my thoughts are going really, really quickly. And that's yeah. that first signal to me of, mm, I am not in a great space right now. Yeah. The physical, the physical is very real. I mean, I, I really believe and I talk about it in the book in the mind body connection as well. So I think when you're not listening to what your mind is trying to tell you, your body's going to try and tell it to you. And that's why it's really important to be like, okay, like this, pain in my stomach or in my chest is a sign of stress and like I need to pay attention to this otherwise it's just gonna evolve into something else and um, Mm -hmm. I do think like the body is a huge a tool to use and to start noticing how you're feeling for me I also notice just like I'm and I talk about this I'm my best self and I'm in a good mood and when I'm overtaking with the mood I'm just I'm less rational I'm I don't see things as clearly and I think you get older and you start to realize that that's what it is like okay like I'm you know they always say after a good night's sleep you'll like think on it you'll feel better and I'm Mm -hmm. starting to realize like the way I perceive events might be wrong because I might be in a specific mood and so I'm starting to learn to be like let me like my thoughts tell me as well and how I'm perceiving something that I'm not in the right frame of mind Mm -hmm. mm-hmm mm-hmm One of the words that you use towards the end of the book is patience, that you've learned that patience is really important to you. And it made me think about the fact that in my own experience, 
and something that I've been really learning too recently is that not every decision has to be made immediately. Yes. Yes. I think there's a lot of, there's a lot to be said for taking time to just pause when it comes to anything work. Like, you know, and I see my husband do this. Like he'll just like get an email on his phone and like rush to respond. And I'm like, you don't always have to respond like right in that second. And I feel like we need to take time to gather ourselves more and gather our thoughts and really think about, you know, the intention of what we're trying to say or what we're trying to do and really start to just more like, I think it helps you live a little bit more gracefully. Um, Whereas before I felt like I was always rushing into situations and then that would cause me anxiety because I would always be like, Oh my God, like I totally didn't think that through or why did I do that? And it's because I wasn't taking that, that time to pause. And um, I've really learned the value in just like, relaxing in the moment and pausing and taking my time and being more deliberate with my actions and, and my words. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, we both have worked from home for a long time as individuals. We learned that about each other uh, today. And um, one of the things is that so many of us now, those of us who have been able to continue to work, so many of us are working from home. And there's these blurry, blurry lines between what work life and the rest of our lives feel like. Um, I'm hearing from a lot of people in my communities this this incredible intensification of that sense of urgency, the rush, the sort of overwhelm of all the information and that there's no gap between work and life anymore. What's your take on that? Like, how is that showing up for you and how does that relate to to how you are able to manage the yeah, moods. I mean, so in the book, it's funny because I talk about working from home before this happened, but I talked about it because, you know, my husband and I were fighting because I thought what was making me miserable was having to leave the house to go to work. Like I thought it was the commute and the long days. And I was like, well, if I could just work from home, these moods wouldn't happen. And then of course I quit my job and I start working from home and the mood showed up again, but just in a different form. Um, the different things bothered me, you know, the smell of the trash, the construction, the fact that I didn't have coworkers anymore, the fact that I couldn't see people. So I had to learn to understand, like, it's not about where you are and it's always, and life is always about, it's not the situation, it's how you perceive the situation and how you're going to define the situation. And I think for me now I'm making, um, and I've been doing this for five years now, I've been working from home like the deliberate practice of really setting aside like breakfast, lunch, dinner, start and turning my laptop off. Um, And I think, you know, really taking those times to be like, I'm going to take an hour lunch break and really just eat your lunch. Like whether it means like moving to a different area or going outside and not bringing your work phone, because then it's like, you're, you're still at work. Um, So I I don't know how, what, what about you? What do you find works best? Mm. That's, yeah, thank you for asking. Uh, as you were talking, the, the <laughs> word boundaries was just so alive in my mind. This idea that it's okay to have boundaries, that it's okay to um, not always be accessible all the time. I think that that's yeah. something that's become really powerful in my own life too, of just knowing that um, my own renewal and taking a time out, like you said, it, it, it brings out my best self. 
which is what yeah. I'd really like to show up with. And, and when I'm totally depleted, I just, I can't bring her, I cannot bring her out to the party. No, no. It's funny you say that too, because I feel like, you know, now that we're at home and now that we can't travel or go to parties, we can't be like, oh, sorry, I missed your email. I was, um, you know, I was on vacation or I was, it's like, we don't have that excuse anymore. So you have to be able to kind of stand up for yourself and be like, I'm just not going to answer this email because it's after work hours. Like, I don't need an excuse. I Or I can just say, I'll get back to you tomorrow, like when I work between eight and five. So I feel like we're being forced to kind of stop this whole like charade of lot. Like, we lie. Come on. Like, we, you know, it's easy to just be like, hey, I'm, you know, I'm out of the country. I can't respond to you right now. Or sorry, I was busy. I was, you know, busy my wife's parents. We can't use those excuses. So we have to start learning how to speak up for ourselves more and setting those boundaries. And, um, and that's hard. And I think the more that we, you know, see other people do it and you go, Oh, okay. Like Christine, cool. Um, I respect that. Like the more we can start doing it for ourselves and kind of just start setting that example. Mm -hmm. Do you find that that helps your mood when you Uh, practice those boundaries? Like, do you feel like it's a, an improvement for you in some way? Definitely. I actually recently had like a little bit of a experience. I still work. Um, I'm a marketing director for this company and it's, I'm a consultant and, you know, I was dealing with this sales guy and he like said something really rude during a call. And usually I just back down and then spend the rest of the day, like, you know, bitching to my husband, like, can you believe he said that? Like, oh, and I was doing that. And I was like, why am I doing this? I'm just creating a mood for myself when like I could just confront the situation, tell him how I feel and be over and done with it. And so I kind of made myself take a page from my own book and I emailed him was like, Hey, do you have a minute to jump on a call? I want to talk about that meeting earlier. And we did. And I told him straight out, I don't know if it's conscious or unconscious, but I, I don't like the comments that you made. And he apologized. Um, we've moved forward. We now have daily meetings, just me and him. And I feel like I felt free after that, just free. Like, yes, it was a little awkward in the moment, but there was something liberating about standing up for myself. And also it was like, I feel like I gave my mind a break. I didn't have to spend like two days obsessing over what I wish I said to him or how I wish I had handled it. Like I just did it. And, and I, I talk about it, this in the book, like stress can be seen as a challenge. Like these experiences, we don't have to fear them. We can say, I'm going to challenge myself to do this awkward thing. And what we're really doing is saving our mind hours and days of just obsessing and overanalyzing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You'll, you'll notice I'm looking down a little bit. I actually pulled quotes from the book, <laughs> things that I really Love loved or things that stood out to me. And I might read a couple of them back to you because they feel like they tie in um, so much. Um, yeah. One of the ones that just popped into my head was um, you were writing about <clears throat> this always being on or always saying yes. You talk about the fact that you always said yes to every invitation. And I, mm-hmm. I thought back to my younger self and I was like, that's me. Yep. I had a really bad case of FOMO for a long time, yeah. fear of missing out. Um, and so I pulled the quote and you said, the fear of letting other people down trumped my own desire to just lie down. Mm, so true. I'm not like talk- that anymore. tell me about that like how has that changed for you and and how has that changed your outlook so I talk you know I talk in the book about this embarrassing meltdown I have in Bloomingdale's just because like it was Saturday Jay wanted to go look for a suit for our wedding 
I didn't want to go suit shopping for four hours. And this is when we were living in Brooklyn and we had to take, you know, two subways into Manhattan. It was the middle of July. And Jay's an easygoing guy. He wouldn't have cared if I said no. But I thought I had to be this dutiful wife and be like, you know what? I just like built this scenario up in my head. Like, I need to say yes to this. So we did it. And of course, you know, it's four hours. I'm depleted from the week. I wanted to spend the day relaxing and I have a meltdown. And I realized it was so embarrassing. It was embarrassing for the you know, the store person there is embarrassing for Jay. It's embarrassing for myself. And I was like, you know what? Never again. I would so much rather say no and have people be a little like annoyed at me not showing up than me say yes and act like a psycho. Like that's kind of was like the defining moment. And now I just feel like, yeah. And I'm, I'm trying to do that thing where I don't like lie when I, when I say no, where I just kind of say like, I can't come I'm you know, I'm really tired from the week, which is totally acceptable rather than oh, I can't come, I, like, I don't feel well, or I've planned with my parents. Because when you start to lie, then you have to start to remember your lies, and then you have to start to worry about those lies. I'm like, oh, wait, what if they see my Insta story of me not hanging out with my parents? So I just found it so much easier in all instances to just tell people, like, no, I need time for myself. I can't go. And, and as I said, the more we do this, the more people will start to accept it and respect it and do it themselves. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you talk a lot about the tension between being on social media, but also some of the dark side of social media and how it has a real impact on our moods when we're watching people that we know, people that we care about, um, having their lives on social media and that moment of, oh, I wasn't included or, oh, that person's doing something that I may never do and the impact that that can have. And yet, you also have a following on social media. You also have a community on social media. How do you navigate those tensions or how, how have you noticed that you have to take care of yourself while also being a public figure in social media circles? So the thing is, I don't consider myself a public figure because Words of Women was anonymous for so long. And it's funny because I created Words of Women to do the opposite of what I think social media does, which is, kind of to disrupt the feed. So I feel like when you're on social media, all you do is see like your friends hanging out without you, all these people doing this amazing stuff, and then like beautiful women with filters. And it's just, it's not setting the right space for yourself. And I was like, well, what if in between all these images, we saw just like an amazing quote that was about like, you know, life and love or just like loving ourselves. And it kind of was just like, make you rethink about how you're thinking. And that was kind of like the point of it. And I think I got a little addicted to it because it was helping me so much um, to reframe my thoughts. But I really just felt like, you know, I know how I feel when I'm on social media and I don't like how I think when, I, when I'm on social media. I don't like my thoughts from what I see. So like, what if I just started seeing other stuff and, and looking at, you know, other things besides um, all this fake stuff and I feel like it's really helped me. And um, however, it is hard to, to find, I will say that's where I have the biggest workplace balance issue um, because I could do it all day long and I, I do need to stop at times and take time for myself and take time out. But um, I will say with Words of Women, I do think I try and be the opposite of what I consider like a social media influencer. Like I, I don't filter myself. Um, I try and give the opposite messages, I think. Not that anyone's giving bad messages, but you know what I mean. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it almost seems like that practice of 
changing our thoughts can change exactly. how we see the world, change our perspective. Um, exactly. And we have and this, you, you know, built-in negativity bias. So like the more we allow that to continue, the stronger it gets. I think of it like a current and like you kind of have to just start making yourself train it to go down the other path. And you really have to start looking for things that'll make you think more positively because it doesn't happen on its own. And you really have to try and look for these things that make you, you know, excited to be alive and, you know, happy. And, and I think the more we see of that, you know, the easier it is to start switching those pathways. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, that evolutionary um, theory that, our negativity bias is part of our survival mechanisms. But what we also know is that staying in survival mode all the time is in and of itself a very depleting experience. We're looking out for what might destroy us as opposed to being in a, a state of calm where we're being in relationship with others. Yeah, and it's, it's a catch-22 for women, especially because we've developed this um, like from evolutionary patterns. Women have developed because we had to take care of our children, we developed this um, ability to constantly be on the lookout for emotional cues because we want to see like, oh, is someone a threat or not to me and my baby? Yet that makes women twice as likely to suffer from anxiety and depression. Um, so it's evolutionary. And I think we have to train ourselves out of this way that we're predisposed to kind of think. And I also think we also need to talk about it more because I know I start to feel crazy because I think differently than my husband. And like, I do like notice things he doesn't. So I'll say like, ooh, I got a weird look from that guy. Like, do you get that weird vibe? And he's like, no, why are you paying attention to that? And I always thought I was a little crazy, but then I understood, no, this is like part of being a woman. And I think, you know, my mind is wired a little differently. And I do notice these changes in people and it's what makes me empathetic, but it's also what's giving me all this anxiety. So there's like a fine balance of understanding, like, I want to have empathy, but I also can't let like a look from the barista at Starbucks ruin my day. Like, I've got to find the middle ground. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that you touch on a lot in, in the book um, and um, that really stood out to me was also how um, people who identify as women do this with other people who identify with women that there's this way in which the comparison piece becomes really, really strong and becomes part of the mood setting process. And it really stood out to me in the book, you talked about one of the major shifts for you. One of the major changes was when you discovered the phrase that you started telling yourself, you're not pretty like her, you're pretty like you. Oh yeah, that was huge, huge for me. I mean, I made it into a sticker, put it on my phone because it's weird how phrases get stuck in our heads, like, and they can just, I just think women always look at other women and think she's better than me. And we we're so used to looking in the mirrors and just seeing our flaws. Like I look in the mirror, I don't see myself. I see what's wrong with myself. Right. And we carry that around all day long. And then we see other women and we don't see what's wrong with them. We see what's beautiful with them. So we forget that other women aren't seeing our flaws and other people, they're seeing what's beautiful about us. We're the only ones who see all these negative things. And so when I started understanding, so I put that sticker that I made, you're not pretty like her, you're pretty like you. I was like, this has such an effect on me. Like, even though it was just a phrase and it was just for a second, I was like, I feel like if I can keep hearing it, I can really start to like change my life around it in a way. So when I put it on my phone, what happened was when I ever was walking down the street, and felt like a beautiful girl or some billboard with like Kendall Jenner on it. 
and started to feel that, you know, pain of inadequacy, I would look at it and be like, yeah, I'm not Kendall Jenner, but I'm me and I'm beautiful in my own way. And my husband thinks I'm beautiful. My friends think I'm beautiful. And I have, I know I have amazing things to give. And I swear after five years, I didn't, I don't have the sticker, it fell off, but like it completely changed the way I look at women. And of course I still have insecurity sometimes, but it's really changed the way I look at myself and compare myself to women. And I think we just need to take a little bit of, we just need to be kinder to ourselves. And then in doing that, we're also being less judgmental of others. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Right before COVID hit, I started, um, I walk my dog most days. It wouldn't be untrue for me to say every day. I, she wishes I did, but some days it doesn't happen. Um, and when I walk my dog, I have a silent meditation that I do for myself. It's just five words but it's kind of been very similar. And, and my five words are um, <clears throat> gratitude, kindness, self-love, resilience, and forgiveness. And I just say them in repetition over and over again. And the cool thing is that I definitely notice myself calm down. I have a French bulldog and she is not a calm dog. I also notice she calms down. So it makes me remember that emotions are also contagious. Moods are oh. contagious. Well, that, that we share the- them with each other without even speaking. Well, that was the whole thing. I really realized I needed to write this book because I saw my husband is so chill and he's such a level-headed guy. And I was starting to infect him in a way. And like, I, and I remember he said this thing and it really hurt me. And I don't even know if we thought about it. I just remember being really upset about it. it and he said, I think you've given me anxiety. As in, I never had anxiety mm-hmm. until I met you. And I was mm-hmm. like, that is like the most horrible thing to hear someone say to you. And that was like, you know, I don't think you can give someone anxiety, but I understood what he was saying. Like I pick up on your vibes and it, it makes me anxious because you're anxious. And I realized how powerful like we are, but imagine if we all were calmer and that calm then just transferring it and that gratitude or that empathy instead of all this negativity and and I really hope you know there's so many aspects of the book but I really hope like the larger one is that you know if enough people read it and enough people can really start working on themselves in small ways like the way you do just like saying those you know phrases those intentions and keeping them in mind then the next time you have an experience, your reaction changes. And then it's not this chain reaction. It kind of like breaks the chain a little bit. And I think the world would be a little bit of a, a kinder, softer place to live. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I'm thinking about uh, the organization Six Seconds. They do emotional intelligence training. I don't know why they popped into my mind, except one of the things that one of the teachers in that organization talks about is that there are no such thing as bad emotions or negative emotions, that all emotions are information. And when I was reading your book, I kind of picked up on that too, because you were describing what happens. And then you're describing the lesson that you've learned from really examining that experience. Yeah. And I think there's a story about Nora Ephron that I talk about and the whole everything is copy, um, which I kind of pull this writing advice into life advice. And it's like, everything that happens to you doesn't have to be bad. It can be like this terrible, terrible thing that happened to you is actually probably a really funny cocktail story or a really interesting anecdote or your next book. 
So it's the way that, you know, these things, they, these emotions happen to us and it's the way that we act on them and perceive them and kind of move through them that really makes them live and we can change them and everything has a purpose and, and you can learn from everything. And as I say, like, I find that makes me less stressed when I realize I can examine this mood. It doesn't have to overtake me. I can pull myself out of it. And I think that's what makes, you know, that's what I want people to get out of this. Like start being less scared of your emotions and start examining them more and start really looking at them. And you don't have to be like looking at, you know, it doesn't have to be homework or anything, but just like it, it takes you out of it and makes it less personal, I think. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You offer such a brilliant set of questions in the book that feel really related to what we're talking about. This reflective stance, this ability to slow down a little bit and take a step back and before acting, asking these four questions. And you say, the questions are, what's the best thing that's likely to happen if I act? What's the worst thing that's likely to happen if I act? What's the best thing that's likely to happen if I do not act? What's the worst thing that's likely to happen if I do act? Yeah, I, I still do that. I think I wrote that for the, the family chapter. <laughs> it was uh-huh. like, am I going to make this comment at dinner tonight? Um, what is the worst thing that could happen if I say it? And if I don't say it, it's usually the best. Um, but just taking that, it's, it's again, taking the time to slow down and evaluate yourself. And like, is this, you know, taking that pause going through life a little bit more slowly. And that's really, because I feel like that's where I was coming into all these clashes, like with my family, with my friends, I was just reacting constantly. Like my friend would send me a text and I would just perceive it one way and respond. And then it would cause this chain reaction. And the same thing, like with my parents, like if I would go home and we'd have like an argument at dinner, like, do I need to make a comment to my sister or is it best left alone? And taking that time to evaluate ourselves and our motives and why we want to say things and, you know, why it's best we don't is a lot of times going to save us the anxiety that causes so many of our moods, I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So in a way, you could say the book is two parts, like stopping your moods and also stopping them from happening. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the through line there to me seemed like it was about self-awareness. Yes. About really waking up to what's happening inside before it leaks out outside. Exactly. That's exactly what it is. And I, I, I speak about, you know, okay, so like Cheryl Strayed went on this amazing journey, which like walked for miles. And Elizabeth Gilbert went to ashrams and Italy and eat, pray, love. Like I didn't do any of that. I didn't have this big spiritual journey. I didn't, I can't say I went to India, but I spent five years studying myself, just, you know, walking through New York City, living the average person's life, but unlike how I'd previously been, I was super aware and alive to myself because I knew I was writing this book. And I think that's what changed. I was like, I could examine myself for the first time and I was having these subway delays, but instead of just breaking down and getting annoyed, I was like, why is this annoying me so much? Why am I letting this get the best of me? What can I do to stop this? So it was like a big experiment. And that in itself, I think, was really helpful in, in stopping the mood, the self-awareness. Mm-hmm. 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 I want to shift gears for a minute. I'd love for you to talk a little bit about your life as a creative person, your life as a writer. How did you become a writer? How did that that calling manifest in your life? So I really, really, really believe in two main philosophies 
One is a Diana Breland quote, and that is, there is only one very good life, and that's the life you know you want and you make it yourself. And the other one is, if they don't give you a seat at the table, bring a folding chair, that's Shirley Chisholm. So I feel like for me, being a writer is one of those things that you, it's very um, fantasized. Like it's very like, you know, we have these notions about it. And I was in the publishing industry and it is very difficult and it's competitive and it's very disheartening. And I think a lot of people who want to be writers feel they have it in them, but are too, like, no one's ever going to publish me. I, I can't do that. I'll, no one's going to read my writing. I read those quotes when I graduated college with a marketing degree, not an English degree. My parents wanted, they were like, we want you to be able to make money, so like do marketing. And, but I took this English class my senior year, the short story, me and the teacher really hit it off. He's like, I think you should go to New York and just try it. And I was like, you know what, I'm going to do it. Went to New York, had no job, um, walked to different restaurants until someone would hire me as a waitress, had enough money for months. But I had this determination that like, I will figure it out. I will get this job. And I did meet someone at that restaurant who started a blog, which was Elite Daily, which got bought by the Daily Mail. But you just need to like have that faith in yourself. So anyway, it's really hard to get a publishing deal. And I was like, you know what? I'm never going to get it the traditional route. I don't want to wait for the traditional way. I need to make my own way. And I feel like if you are bold enough, you can get, you know, what you want in life. And you have to really, I think writers are very insecure because, you know, it's scary to put your words out there. But I was like, I'm just going to start Words of Women and it's going to be my blog. I'm not going to write for anyone else's blog. And, and for five years, people were like, what are you doing? Like, my parents were like, when are you, like, going to focus on your real job and, like, stop this? Like, even my husband was like, what are you, like, what are you doing with this account? Like, what's the point? And I was like, I'm going to write a book one day. Like, that is the plan. And I think you really need to, like, stick to your guns. And it's, and that's how I feel. I think it's hard to be a creative this day and age. It's, it feels like there's a lot of noise out there. you got to break through it. And you have to find your niche and you have to find, you know, how am I going to build my platform? I have to stick with it because success doesn't come overnight. It's like every day. And I think perseverance is probably more important than the writing itself. Mm-hmm. How, how is it that a moody woman, I say that from one to another, I hope you take it in the spirit. Oh, it's I meant. love it. Please. I love it. <laughs> how, how is it that you, find the resources for perseverance, find the resources for that dedication when the moods are having their ebbs and tides and coming and going. And, um, and is that fuel in some way for your work? I've always said it was fuel. And the problem was though, I was resting on it as it's okay that I have these terrible moments because I'm a creative, but it wasn't okay. Like it was, you know, sabotaging my relationship and I was drinking a lot. I wasn't, I didn't have a handle on it. And once I got a handle on it, though, I can channel it much better. Um, and I think, you know, being moody, is, being emotional is a gift. We have all these things. We feel these things. I didn't feel these things. I don't think I could write the way I write or write about the things I write about. But, you know, there is, you have to be able to turn it off like a faucet. Like, I think that's where your power comes from, being able to control yourself and the urges that move through you. And honestly, words of women, I think having that, like, I know I do it for the book and for women, but I do it for myself. Like I look for quotes that help motivate me to keep going. Like I need something today that is going to fuel me. So a lot of the quotes on the account are actually from other women writers or artists. 
And it's kind of like their mantras or the things that they have said to themselves that um, help them. And honestly, it's really, I'm posting it for myself as much as I'm posting it for social media. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think you yeah. need those women out there saying like what you need, like, you know, I'm just Coco Chanel started as nothing. You know what I mean? She was a, a poor girl, an orphan. Like you need these women, Diana Reeland, who was the editor in chief of Vogue, never had a college degree. I don't even know she finished high school. So like you need to see these women and you need to hear them. And I think it's very inspirational to, to read their quotes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, it's, it's that sense that there is no one exact right way to do exactly things. Exactly it. That's exactly it. Like, stop feeling like you're, you can't do it. Like, there's only, you know, if you haven't done it now, you'll never, like, you can 100% do it. There's so many writers who are like, I didn't pick up a pen till I was 45. And now I'm winning the Pulitzer. And I think it's really important that we see that because I don't think we ever see that. We just see the success. And we're like, oh, they were always successful. That was, you know, they had an in, they knew someone, they're just geniuses. But we don't see the stories of the people who are like, no, this is like really how, how I did it. And this is hard, but this is what the way I made my, my way in. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I mean, there are lists now, like, and I know that there've been lists like this for a long time, but I feel like the presence of lists like 30 under 30 create this sense that there's a, a very strict a narrative that, yeah, that after 30, it's too late. Oh yeah. And it's like, you're striving for the, doing this thing by 30. I even had it in my head. I was like, I got to get this book out before I'm 30. So I can be on 30 and 30. What is that list? Who makes that list? Like I always say that, like who makes national donut day? Like who makes these decisions and why are we letting them define us? Like who cares? I think if anything, it's, it's almost more awesome to see people succeed later in life. I think it takes, you know, you have, you know, it shows the guts and the time and the effort someone put in and you're like, I think even now as we live in this generation where everyone's, you know, changing jobs all the time, there's something to be said when you see that someone who's been in a job like 10, 15, 20 years, someone who's been honing their craft, someone who's dedicated themselves to something. I think that's a lot, says a lot more now than maybe five years ago when I would see 30 under 30. I was like, oh, wow, these kids are so young and successful. Now I'm like, ah, oh, they got lucky or they, they worked hard, but like that's nothing compared to like, you know, the 60 year old who, just won a prize and it's been writing for 30 years. That's much more impressive to me. So there's no cutoff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I often tell people I started my doctorate when I was 32 <clears throat> and I had had six careers before then. And for a lot of so. women, people especially think like 30s, you know, oh, well, there's it's just over. like a lot of, there's a lot of pressure. <laughs> like it's all downhill. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. so I feel, mm-hmm. I, I, do, I do feel like there's, that needs to be shown more that, I don't even know why we have those lists. <laughs> anyway, maybe I'm just jealous and not on it. Oh, we're, and we're back to envy. Mm. Another Here mood. We are. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Except it's not a mood anymore. It's now like named it. I'm through it, I think. <laughs> uh huh. Right. Right. And the question that was on the heels of that was what, what moods that we call positive or what moods that we tend to validate as good moods better? Um, what are, what moods do you feel more frequently these days now that you've done this project? Well, I definitely feel, I try to lean into gratitude more. Um, definitely noticing like, wow, like look at my husband here. Like, look, I have this amazing man who, you know, this partner I never thought I would have, 
wow, look at this book I just made. Whereas before, like you, I would just obsess over a negative comment about the book. And I think, you know, gratitude is a great mood that I've really been trying to practice more and, or realize when I'm experiencing it and leaning into it. Um, I just had another one and I just forgot it. Um, I mean, feeling successful. I think we should, you know, take time to be like, look at what I just accomplished and look at what I just did today. And, you know, but there are some days when I send a few emails, but like that to me, I'm like, that was pretty good. You know, I was tired and I still got my work done and I did fine. And I think leaning into those moments, I think we're so hard on ourselves. So when you have those moments where, you know, like you feel that like second of pride or success, you should really like lean into it. And I've been trying to do that a lot more. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I've been deep leaning into joy. Oh, that's these days. One. It's a new one to me. That's it's a, a it's got so much to it, and um, and I don't take it for granted when I experience it. And I think that's what's been really an amazing and you're noticing recognition. It. You're, mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think mm-hmm. I talk in the book. Women especially don't take the time to treat themselves or to like let themselves really fall into those moments of self-indulgence which I also consider joy sometimes um like let yourself enjoy this moment it doesn't have to be like oh I should be doing something else right now if I'm you know not working like I feel like we're almost like masochists when it comes to our our own joy um so that's a great Mm -hmm. one Mm -hmm. can you talk a little bit you you talk about this in the book and you break it down pretty specifically with relationship to a, a, a lesson that you learned from Buddhism around mm-hmm. the concept of self-cherishing. And you just talked oh, yeah. a little bit about self-indulgence, but I'd love for you to talk a little bit about what this idea of learning self-cherishing is all about as well. Yeah. So self-cherishing is like all about the ego, right? And so we get really bogged down in thinking that our problems are the only problems, And, you know, we are the center of our own universes. So our suffering is obviously the most important suffering. And it's this sense of self-cherishing. And the only way to get out of it is to think, like, almost think, I, I imagine it's like a zoom out effect of like, you see one person and then you see the whole world. And the only way is, I, I think it's called Tonglin. And it's this practice where, so let's say you're feeling really, you know, bad today. You have a huge debt. You're feeling ugly. You're like, why don't I look like Kendall Jenner? I hate my own self. You think about, all the other women who are probably feeling the same way. And what happens is you look in the mirror and you go, you breathe in and it's like, almost like you're breathing in their pain. And then you breathe out a prayer for them. And it's this antidote to self-cherishing. It's it's forcing you and it's so comforting. And I do it now because I, it's almost, you're supposed to breathe out a healing, like healing for them. Like you say to yourself, like when I breathe out, I hope these women feel, feel better. Their pain is lessened. And what happens is it's like this like tranquilizer to self-cherishing because it makes you realize how like your problems, everyone has a sack of rocks. Everybody's carrying something. Everybody has a problem. And when you can stop seeing yourself as the only one, I think you feel a little better. There's like, there's something to be said about collective suffering and feeling like loneliness isn't felt when you know other people feel it um, because you're lonely together. and that's, I think, really important. I think that's also a big lesson of the book. Like, you're not the only person who feels this way. 
And why don't, instead of you focusing so much on your pain, you think about how to heal other people or ways that you can just start giving maybe more gratitude out. And um, it's really changed my life when I understood that, that concept. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In, in uh, addiction recovery, that phenomenon is also referred to as terminal uniqueness. Mm-hmm. And when I heard that term, it, it's that sense of my problems are the, are the, the, the biggest problems. I carry the biggest weight. No one mm-hmm. understands my experience. Yeah. Um, and it's when the shift comes of, of that connection, that recognizing that we all experience yeah. all and of the spectrum of emotion, you know, that, yeah. that it really can become so much more clear. And they always say like the antidote, who said there's a theme, it's like when you feel sorry for yourself, what you should do is go help someone else. Like in your lowest moments, that really when you're supposed to be like, go see the people who are worse off than you and you'll stop feeling so bad for yourself. And I think for me, it just, it, it really comes down to knowing other women feel the same way. I, I think women have this urge to, to heal. So it's like, when I think of the other women, I go, well, I need to like get my act together and think about how I can help them feel less bad about themselves. So I stopped focusing so much on myself and start thinking about, you know, my friends. And also I just think women's pain is very insular. So when we start to think of pain being collective and like, we're not the only ones feeling this way, it doesn't feel as bad. And we don't feel like we're carrying it alone and as much. And mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. I've got a couple of like uh, little quick fire questions that I want to pick your brain about. Are you ready? Okay. Um, I'd love to know what you've been up to since you completed the book. What does life look like for you since you created the book? I've actually moved home to Philadelphia. Um, got a much bigger apartment because it's much cheaper than New York. Um, I got married, but I talk about that in the book. Um, so it's funny because I've been nervous about writing more because I'm superstitious. But then I saw this um, Abram Hicks thing, which was like, I believe manifestation, like if you have a book coming out, you should be writing your second book, like start manifesting that. So I'm working on a, a second book, um, thinking about getting pregnant, working just, I don't know, we'll see about that. Um, but it's on the horizon. And um, yeah, I mean, I think pandemic has kind of thwarted a lot of my plans, unfortunately. Um, but so far, living my best life, I guess. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you're still continuing words of women? Of course, I'm addicted. I don't think I'll ever stop. Um, it's, yeah, so much more. It's like a, it's a therapy for me at this point. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, what is the most important thing to you right now? It can be anything. Right now, it's family, I think. I think we've all found in quarantine, like how important family really is when you can't see them and also how much we cherish the moments. And, you know, there's all this horrible, horrible news going on. And I also worry about my parents more now they're older. Um, and I'm realized that worry is also love. So it's like, I think we're all, I think families are coming closer and that's probably right now the biggest thing on my mind. Mm -hmm. What advice or what recommendations would you give to 
12-year-old Lauren or to young women and young girls right now when it comes to living our life of moods? Moods are natural. Don't be so scared of them. Stop being so hard on yourself. Um, Sadness is not something to fear. Every emotion passes, right? I used to think if I'm sad right now, I'm just always going to be sad. And, And sadness fades very quickly and you just have to ride through it and don't try, don't get so caught up in your emotions. Um, don't act out of emotional responses, but also just be gentle with yourself and everything will work out and you will grow into the woman you're supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you for that. Uh, um, and lean on each other, I guess is the other yeah. piece that I would I invite that. with that too. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. What's one thing that, that you're still holding about the book of moods or about a life lesson that you want to share about how you turned your worst moods into your best life? I have to think about that for a second. I really wrote it out. Like, I feel like it was this, it's funny because my friend, I let my friend read an early copy and she was like, she, she was like, this is a love letter to yourself. Like, you know that, right? And I was like, what? She's like, this is like such a beautiful piece of self-exploration, but you can tell you're really just going through it. Like it's not you writing five years later. You're clearly in the midst of reckoning with yourself and your feelings. So I feel like it was almost like a rebirth. Like I feel like I've shed a skin since I've written it and really Mm -hmm. become this new woman. And I think the biggest lesson I would just say is like, you are emotional. We need to take ownership of one being emotional instead of always, like I talk about this in the PMS chapter, just always being like, no, like, I don't, I'm not going to, you might be getting your period and that's okay. And like that changes how our, our chemical balances, our hormones, you might also just be moody and that's okay. So like lean into that and try and like, figure out what works for you. And I think once you accept that you are an emotional woman, and as you like said, like one moody woman to another, like I like that term. So I'm trying to kind of lean into those, those findings I'm figuring out about myself. I am emotional, more emotional than my husband. And that doesn't have to be something I suppress and hide and, and I'm ashamed of. So that'd probably be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's such a wonderful way to bring our conversation to rest. So I really, I just want to thank you so much for spending time with us tonight. And um, it's just been delightful to get to know you and your work. And thank you for sharing your words of wisdom with us tonight. Of course, I so appreciate you having me here and talking about the book. I mean, there's a lot to go over and I feel like we've really covered it and it just has been so nice to like speak to other people who've read it and finally be able to discuss it. So thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the CIIS Public Programs podcast. Our talks and conversations are presented live in San Francisco, California. We recognize that our university's building in San Francisco occupies traditional unceded Ramatush Ohlone lands. If you are interested in learning more about native lands, languages, and territories, the website native-land.ca is a helpful resource for you to learn about and acknowledge the land where you live. Podcast production is supervised by Kirsten Van Cleef at CIIS Public Programs. 
Audio production is supervised by Lyle Barrere at Desired Effect. The CIIS Public Programs team includes Kyle DiMedio, Alex Elliott, Emlyn Guinea, Jason MacArthur, and Patty Fork. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe wherever you find podcasts, visit our website, ciis.edu, and connect with us on social media at CIIS Pub Programs. CIIS Public Programs commits to use our in-person and online platforms to uplift the stories and teachings of Black, Indigenous, and other people of color, those in the LGBTQIA community, and all those whose lives emerge from the intersections of multiple identities.